Okay, everybody, welcome to Chapter 5 of The Mandalorian Companion, The Gunslinger, uh, both written and directed by Dave Filoni, uh, that originally uh, was released on December 6th of 2019. Welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug. Um, any broad thoughts on this before we uh, get down to the nitty-gritty? Well, it's it's sort of like um, not a major sort of plot-moving episode, but it's better than the last one, Seven Samurai. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I kind of feel like, I feel kind of torn about this episode. Like, depending on the lens through which you view it, you could argue that this is both the best episode of the season and the worst. Like, it just kind of depends on how you feel about it because I kind of feel like, and I'll, I'll point out a million examples, this entire episode can be summed up in two words, fan service, right? Yeah. The whole point of this episode is to make you like vigorously nod as you just see one recognizable thing after the next, after the next, after the next. Like it's, it's more like a nostalgia episode than it does anything to move the storyline forward in the slightest. No, it has. It really doesn't have much to do with the season. However, as a disposable piece of episodic entertainment, it's okay. It's Absolutely, okay. yeah. No, it's actually a lot of fun to watch. And and again, I'm actually. I've said before on the podcast that I'm actually okay with the lighter episodes. Like I, one of the things that kind of turned me off to more recent incarnations of Star Wars was that it got so like overdramatic and melodramatic and top heavy that it, it forgot along the way that it was supposed to be fun. And this is a fun episode. Yeah. But, um, what was I going to say? Uh, it's just, I mean, literally from the opening frame, it's, you know, it's all fan service. Um, so, um, after a brief, uh, recap, right. We begin, uh, with a pretty generic space battle. Uh, where the Mandalorian is being uh, fired upon by another guild member uh, who does have yeah. a pretty cool helmet. I got to give him credit on his helmet. Um, he almost says, I have you now, when he gets him <laughs> in this little like electronic HUD <laughs> right, right. display. Which looks Star exactly Wars. like the ones that the TIE fighters have. It's Yeah, exactly. Um, and the whole chase, too, is sort of reminiscent. Of, it reminded me a lot of the... The, the chase scene where uh, Obi-Wan is uh, chasing Slave 1 uh, with containing both Django and young Boba Fett in Attack of the Clones. It's very, very similar to that. They don't use these same missiles, but just sort of the way it's filmed and the kinetics of it uh, were very, very reminiscent of it. And again, that's okay. It actually reminded me a little bit of uh, some, some elements of Firefly as well. Did you ever watch Firefly? Yeah. The Mandalorian yeah. ship, by the way, looks looks uh, to no small extent like the ship in Firefly, but that's a whole other issue. Yeah. Um, and I then hate, I hate the slam on the brakes trick. <laughs> right, it's like straight out of Top Gun <laughs> and every it's, other movie. It's so dumb. Um, uh, and yeah, to, to absolutely no one's surprise, <laughs> the, the Mandalorian emerges victorious, but slightly wounded, or his ship. Right. And again, you know, uh, just 
amazing me once again how like all damage is repairable to you know interstellar spacecraft like no matter what happens all you got to do is find the nearest gas station or you know napa auto parts and you could basically fix an interstellar you know hyper um you know luminal spacecraft it's amazing it's amazing you can do it without droids too that's yeah the, no uh, right exactly the all, you, all you need is a sort of a crusty old version of rhea perlman <laughs> <laughs> I thought so, that was Rhea Perlman. <laughs> I think they couldn't get Rhea Perlman was the issue. So they got this. She kind of reminded me, she was like a cross between Rhea Perlman and, and Veronica Cartwright playing Lambert and Alien. Like that's kind of like, <laughs> that was like, she was somewhere in that, in that thing. So, so he's losing fuel. And of course he just happens by miraculous chance to lose fuel uh, just close enough to a, a planet that some viewers might just have a vague, passing familiarity with yeah How, what a um, coincidence right exactly in, in all of the universe <laughs> he well, just happens since, but every scene like well half the scenes in the movie so far look like they take place on Tatooine right and which it, is and again at least they just actually place it on Tatooine and for example you know in the in the new trilogies you know they're always going back to Jakku which for all intents and purposes is Tatooine which is ridiculous um, and I he decides doing spelled backwards yeah, or something. So he decides to head to none other than, um, Moss Eisley spaceport. Um, at three thirty-six, there is a camera shot of, uh, the Mando ship approaching Tatooine, which is in terms of, uh, the way the planet is filmed and the camera moves is identical to the opening shot of a new hope. Um, right. And then uh, he hangs out at uh, Moss Eisley Spaceport, which is seen from the exact same view that uh, Obi-Wan and uh, Luke view it from uh, their perch before they head into town, where we are told that it, uh, we will never find, you know, right, uh, scum and villainy, dot, 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 et cetera. Um, but again, and he lands, uh, he lands at Docking Bay 35. So just down the, you know, just down the street from where Han parked Millennium Falcon. Yeah, but um, man, once they go in, I mean, talk about familiar. I mean, it's like the same seat that Greedo sat in. Right, exactly, right. Well, specifically, it's Han's seat, right? So, yeah. uh, so we we're, we were jumping ahead a little bit, but we'll get there. We'll get there. So, so anyway, so he lands his ship, uh, which despite being all beat up, lands just fine. Um, the baby Yoda puppet slash maquette. He kind of just puts him on ice in a, in a little room. And then uh, we meet uh, our human uh, repair woman who is assisted by three droids, pit droids as they're called, uh, who are identical to the pit droids that we saw on Tatooine in The Phantom Menace. So again, like it's just wink, wink, wink the whole thing through. And this is really setting the tone for the entire episode. Um, yeah. And she's, uh, you know, she's working alone with these three droids, and she's somehow able to to do everything without heavy equipment. Right. What's the point of the droids? Yeah, I don't know. The droids look like they could lift about three pounds each, but somehow they're able to do this big, heavy work. Well, the real point is comic relief. Exactly. And, well, the, the real point is to get him away from the child so that he can kind of run around without the kid for an episode, I think. Yeah. Right. That's that's kind of so he's stowed away in the ship, and it lets him 
head into town. And he, uh, he shows an averseness, uh, adver- whatever, adversity to, uh, adversity to uh, having the droids work on the ship. He gives her 500 Imperial credits and says, uh, you know, uh, I'll get more money and, and you start working on the ship. So, and then he heads into, uh, he walks down some extremely familiar looking streets and he heads into uh, uh, Chalman's Spaceport Cantina. That's the actual name, um, which is, lo and behold, the exact same cantina we all saw in A New Hope, which is, you know, it's interesting, like, you know, here where I live, like a bar or a restaurant can't stay in business for more than three years, you know, yet this bar is open for seemingly decades. Well, you know, when they invented hyperspace travel, they invented long-lasting restaurants. <laughs> I guess. I wonder, like, what the Zagat guide gave, uh, gave Chalman Spaceport Cantina, you know? It's probably pretty low. <laughs> um, by the way, while he's wandering into the cantina, Rhea Perlman uh, stumbles across the child, and there's the obligatory uh, cute scene. And, and I yeah. think that's to kind of let the viewer know that the child is okay. Um, so he heads into um, the cantina. Um, uh, there is, by the way, there's a throwaway reference to Womp Rats, which is something that Luke references in A New Hope, obviously. Um, there's right. an R5-D4 droid. And like you said, um, uh, Toro, what is it? Toro Calican? Uh, the uh, the other bounty hunter that he meets is literally sitting at Han's table in Han's seat. Yep. Right. And then it's like basically that same booth where Han and Greedo talk later. Right. Or before. I guess it happened a long time ago there. <laughs> yeah, right. right. It did. Right. Um, uh, and he even has his feet up, right? Doesn't Han have his feet up at one point in that scene? I'm pretty so. sure he does. Um, and he's got his feet up. Um, and again, you know, when I, I'm not going to lie to you, when I watched this episode the first time, I was enjoying all this stuff. I was like, yep, yep, got it, recognize it, got it, love it, great. And then kind of on my rewatch, like, it's, it's a little overdone. Yeah. No, I mean, it's kind of, you're exact, that was exactly my reaction. The first time I appreciated the incredible level of detail they went to to basically make it look identical. They rebuilt the set, basically. I was wondering if they rebuilt the set or if um, it was CG because a lot of this show is CG and, and digital backdrops and things like that. Like, it's really hard to tell. Like, I was, I was literally wondering, did they build it or did they not? By the way, um, two, two interesting things to note at um, 8 minutes and 49 seconds. One is that as he heads over to meet uh, Toro, behind him you see the sort of like coffee percolator device behind the bar which is uh, the same object that was used to make ig88's head in empire strikes back and there's a large sort of insectoid uh sitting at the bar behind him that bears no small resemblance to a zindi from star trek enterprise i just thought that was interesting could have been a coincidence could have been on purpose uh, yeah but the bartender i don't think was a was a droid back. No, in the, in, in the New Hope, time. it's that crusty fat dude who's like, you're droids, we don't serve them here. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, they meet, and by the way, uh, I just have to throw out there that uh, the the person who plays uh, Toro uh, Calican, 
the the other bounty hunter. He is a terrible actor. <laughs> Jake Canaval, no disrespect. He's a young guy. He's got time to get better, but he, like, he does not. Um, he really doesn't do a great job. Let's just say that. Yeah. I mean, uh, he makes. Um, how do I say this? He makes Hayden Christensen, who played Anakin in, in the prequel trilogy, look like Laurence Olivier. I don't know if I'd go that far. But. <laughs> He's pretty bad. He's pretty bad in this. Well, you know, if they're going to be nostalgic about Star Wars, they got to put some bad acting in there. Yeah, that's a good point. So, uh, so at nine minutes, we sit down, and then the plot actually starts to to move along. And it turns out that uh, this young bounty hunter is on his first job for the guild uh, looking for uh, a young woman named Fennec Shand, recognizable to most people as the actress Ming-Na Wen, uh, who was the voice of Mulan and uh, most famously from my perspective, uh, played Dr. Chan on ER for a couple of years. Did you watch ER when it was popular? Uh, very little of it. It was pretty good, I gotta in, say. Uh, she's an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. also. She has... Yeah, she's been in a lot of stuff. She, you know, she's 56. She does not look 56 in this. She looks much, much younger. Yeah, she's Asian. <laughs> so, um, Mandalorian says that, uh, you know, that he doesn't know if he wants to do the job. The, the guy kind of throws himself on the mercy of the court, uh, Toro, and he says, look, I can't do it alone. I need your help. I'll give you the money. I just got to get some something under my belt and I got to get started in my career as a bounty hunter. Um, so, so they strike a bargain. Right. And then in a, in a bit of foreshadowing showing that Toro is not to be distrusted, sorry, not to be trusted. He refuses to give the Mandalorian the tracking fob and he destroys it. Right. right, and the Mandalorian says, "Give it to me," and he he smacks it against the wall and wrecks it, right? Saying he's got the information memorized, so that the Mandalorian is essentially now stuck with him, right? Um, he uh, the Mandalorian heads off to uh, Hertz uh, rent a bike, where he rents <laughs> two. Um, technically, they are swoop bikes, but they're recognizable to everybody as obviously speeder bikes. But uh, before doing that, he does head back to his ship a little bit where he realizes that the child has gone missing and he has a little moment of panic. Yeah, that's one of the few things I kind of like in the episode, actually, is how upset he gets when the kid, like the little sort of unintentional moments where he shows that he loves the kid. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, and again, they, they do a good job of, of really conveying his character. You know, we've talked about comparing this to dread a little bit, like, you know, he's good at moving. He conveys a lot of emotion for never, ever being able to show his face at yeah. least so far. Um, but the puppet is in good hands and uh, she's working on the ship. So, you know, this, you know, is this scene I think is, you could argue that they, didn't need this scene because they already showed that the kid was in good hands and that uh, he was off on the mission. Like if they needed to cut a scene or two, this is the scene they could have cut right here. Because it doesn't tell you anything you don't know. Yeah. So anyway, so he, like I said, he heads over to Hertz. You know, he has that thing where like when you get off the plane, you can order your speeder bikes on the phone and they're just ready for you right when you walk out of the airport. 
Uh, yeah. So he gets on his swoop bikes. They um, have little uh, air fresheners hanging on. Them. <laughs> uh, yeah, they have, like there's that Geico ad where they're they're riding them for their insurance. Um, and then uh, they head off, right? They head off into none other than the Dune Sea, right? Which we had heard and seen in A New Hope. And there's a there are some nice uh, shots of them traversing vast expanses of, of sand. And it, it does make riding the bikes look pretty cool. Yeah, except, you know, like George Lucas had to go to, um, to uh, like Algiers, out to uh, um, Algeria to, to shoot all that stuff, right? And like here they're just, they just plug in a little software yeah, yeah. Now I've watched a little bit on how they made it. It's it's all digital backdrops. Yeah. Uh, I mean, almost the entire show is filmed on like one large circular digital set. Ironically, the doing it digitally probably cost more than putting everybody on a seven forty seven and flying them to North Africa. Yeah. Um, Star Wars Tatooine, right, is filmed in Tunisia, whereas this is like you were saying, this is all obviously just digital. Yeah, sorry, Tunisia, not Algeria. So, um, but it looks great. And honestly, you know, like there's digital stuff that looks bad and there's digital stuff that looks good. And this is definitely in the good category. Like I, you know, like it looks like CG, but it's, it looks like good CG and it's television. So you're much more accepting of it. Um, so, uh, what do they see? They see none other than in the midst of the Dune Sea, they come across another fan favorite, <laughs> right? Uh, they come the across old Obi Wan Kenobi. <laughs> right. He makes that weird. Right. Uh, but they come arms. across right uh, Banthas and Sand People, and they even view them through macro binoculars, just like Luke does in a new. And movie. they show up right behind them. Right, just like happens in A New Hope. Yep. Um, so, you know, again, like, the, as we talk about it, the more we go through this stuff, it does, it does sound a little lame, but uh, I'm sure they had fun making it. And then somehow uh, the, the Mandalorian speaks uh, uh, TSL, like Tusken Raider Sign Language. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and by the way, they're, they're carrying uh, gaffy sticks, so they've got of all the sort course. of instruments of the sand people. And then they make a deal to cross their land. They give them uh, the kids' binoculars, um, and uh, they're able to, to sort of then continue on their way. So, like, that scene is pretty gratuitous. The sand people don't come back in the episode to play any major role. Right. Right? It's just... Wink, wink, look, we have sand people on the show. And again, and again, I'm not trying to be whatever. It's a show for children, and the second main character on the show is a puppet. I get it. Uh, but uh, Well, it's for children and middle-aged men. Right, exactly. <laughs> or, or childish middle-aged men. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so they crest a hill, and they see none other than a dewback, right, which we saw the stormtroopers riding on in A New Hope. Uh, a digital do-back, I might add, and it's dragging a dead rider, right? Which they initially think is Fennec Shan, but it's, it's actually revealed to be a dead bounty hunter who went after Fennec Shand. Right. So uh, they go down to investigate um, and uh, end up getting fired upon, right? By the real, right? Uh, the real Fennec Shand. 
who's got a pretty kick-ass rifle. Yeah, she's like seven miles away shooting yeah. at them. She's like, is, she, they know, made a movie about her called uh, um, Tatooine Sniper. You know, I think Bradley Cooper uh, was in it. But uh, well, I mean, her snipe, her rifle is more what I expect in a you know spacefaring culture. <laughs> and she's got a nice scope on it. You know, she spent some money and got the Holosun scope on the thing. Um, so they're, they're kind of pinned down. Like the two of them are stuck behind a sand dune far away. And uh, Fennec Shan has a better gun and a better sight. And a better sight, I mean, and they're just going to, they realize they, they have to just wait until dark and see if they can um, see if they can get some sort of advantage that they can play. And then in, in a, a big Star Wars joke, um, the kid says to the, to the Mandalorian that she has the high ground, which is uh, Obi-Wan's famous line to Anakin uh, uh, before he essentially you know, defeats him <clears throat> and Uta Pau in the, in the last of the prequel movies. Please, I was trying to forget that. <laughs> uh, so they they waited out till dark, um, and then uh, they they mount a charge. There's a long sort of set piece where they mount a charge on her, and the idea is that they know that she's going to be using the scope, which greatly magnifies everything in the dark light and brightens things up. She's got a little night vision on it. And the idea is that they're going to set off essentially flares to blind her and give themselves a few seconds of advantage. That's, that's, that's all that they have is they hope that maybe with a few seconds of an advantage, they can, you know, turn the tables on her. I mean, unfortunately, as, as fancy as that rifle is, it doesn't have any kind of auto exposure for the scope <laughs> that actually functions. I know. Not to blind her. Right. So, the weird thing is, if you look at the rifle really carefully, it says Smith & Wesson on it. <laughs> uh, but this is, I have to give them credit, this is about a two-minute scene, and it's well done because they have multiple, you know, they, they've got multiple uh, players going on. Like, he and the, the Mandalorian have to separate. They have to come at her from different angles. The Mandalorian gets shot. It's, I, actually, I think this, this particular bit is pretty well done and edited. The only thing is they don't use enough flash grenades. Like, it takes them a while. You know, like, they, they have these long parts where they get shot at in between. Like, why didn't they tighten it up a little bit? Yeah, I don't know. I Actually, I like this scene quite a lot, and I like the way, too, that it degenerates to hand-to-hand combat. When uh, Toro gets the drop on her from behind, she is revealed to have a small, some sort of, like, throwing weapon in the butt of her rifle, and she whips it at him, and then they, they descend into hand-to-hand combat. Um, you know, showing that he is very much overmatched. Uh, and the Mandalorian, who took a hit in the Beskar, um, is able to sort of come up and get the drop on her and turn the tables, right? She's got the kid, essentially, or she's, it's, it's implied that she's the better of the two combatants, but the Mandalorian is able to turn the tide. Yeah, he basically just walks up and tells her to cuff herself. And then, um, you know, it's sort of the whole episode takes an interesting turn where they realize they've lost one speeder bike in the attack on Fennec Shand. Mm -hmm. um, And they've got to somehow get away, you know, out. Right. So there's a debate over who should go, who should stay with her. And, and this brings us right back to the scene at the cantina where we are, you know, like there's mistrust between the two of them. 
and uh, Toro says, look, I'm not going to go and leave you here alone with her. You're just going to bring her in and I'm going to lose everything. So the Mandalorian decides to ride the dewback. Why didn't the Mandalorian just take the speeder bike? That would have been a hell of a lot faster. And then yeah. ride back and then, you know, rent and get an Uber or something and come back out and get her. Like, it's a little odd. I guess it's to just give them enough time that they can have a long conversation. I think the three of them should have tried to pile onto the speeder bike and <laughs> see what happens. Like, they didn't even try it. Yeah, that'd be interesting, right? She could be the B.O.B., as they say. Yeah, I just, you know what the B.O.B. is? No. The bitch on back. Oh. <laughs> you never heard that? No, well, again, now that you mention it, yeah. I definitely think it would have been the, the junior bounty hunter. Yeah, so... Uh, so yeah, it's, it, it's a little odd. It doesn't really make sense that uh, they leave the bike there. And, and, you know, and obviously, it would have been better trust-wise if one of them took the bike and the other one didn't have a way out, right? Yeah. Um, so anyway, so the Mandalorian uh, goes and he takes off on the do-back. Um, and then she basically is able to sort of get inside his head. And this is also another good scene. And Ming-Na Wen is a good actress. And she actually, this is, I think, her best scene in the whole show. It's also her, practically her only dialogue in the whole show. Right. And she's able to sort of convince him that, yeah, you got me, but the Mandalorian is worth a lot more than me. His armor is worth a lot more than me. And the child is worth a lot more than me. Right? The, the person that they're all after him that he has in his, you know, company is worth more than me. Right. And he's basically like farting around for small potatoes. Um, and then I think in probably the biggest surprise of the episode, right? You know, they're leading you down this path that they are going to team up against the Mandalorian in, in the one genuine surprise in the whole yeah. episode. Right. When he realizes that everything she's saying is true, he right. shoots her at point blank range. Right. He kills her. That was surprising. And it was, I mean, it was, it was a surprise and also it makes you realize just how incredibly mercenary he is. And again, like, it's good that they did that. Like, it, I know it's a show for kids, but it's good that they had that darker adult turn of events you know people and, die unlike when lucas is in charge of making anything yeah and he and he you know he kills her in a bad way like he shoots her like you know from about two feet away and he has no emotional reaction right in the and stomach yeah you know those abdominal wounds are really tough um and uh but what's really good is like the look on her face and this is what i mean when i say she's a good actress like she really conveys like you know, we've seen her so like confident and cocky the whole show. Like she conveys like shock, surprise, you know, weakness, right? And sadness all in just like a, a very, very few seconds. Like it's a very good scene. And then the sun is literally setting as she's dying. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah, she um, just, right. She basically has a, you know, he kills her and she realizes what's happening for a few seconds before she's dead. Right. No time to get peritonitis even. Um, and then the Mandalorian, right? He's on the slow boat to China. Uh, he's he been gone, by in, the way, for about a week. Yeah, he makes it into town, and when he gets into town, what does he see? He sees the swoop bike, right? Yep. So he knows something's gone sour, and most likely the kid has betrayed him. 
Um, and he heads into Docking Bay 35, and uh, Rhea Perlman has a gun at her back, and he's holding the puppet, the kid. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is a, I thought this was a bit of an opportunity lost here. Tell me if you disagree. I thought this was an opportunity lost because the ending is, it's played very straight, right? We've just seen a big unexpected plot twist. Right. Right. And like, it kind of piques your interest and you think like, wow, like the show's capable of doing stuff unexpected. Maybe, maybe this, you know, amateur bounty hunter wannabe is, um, is, is more proficient than you expected. Right. Right. You know, maybe exactly. There's more to him. Maybe he's, he's was playing downplaying his abilities. Maybe there's another role. Maybe he's involved in something in the rest of the story, but no, he really does. Suck. No, right. He's just a doofus and, and, and he's defeated by a, a flashbang grenade, right? Just like they used against, uh, Fennec Shand. It's like the Mandalorian is he's like, he's like reading the newspaper while he defeats him. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's over much too quickly. Um, and it would have been interesting if, uh, he and the kid had a little dialogue, you know, like when the kid dies, he just falls on the ground dead. Like that would have been interesting if there had been a little like denouement between those two characters. And there isn't. I think that the Mandalorian should have defeated him and then put a big chain around his neck and put him in a bikini like Princess Leia. And <laughs> dragged him around. Dragged him around, on, put him on the ship with the kid and dragged him around. Yeah. And then somehow, uh, despite being you know three inches away from the shot, the, uh, the child is completely safe and hiding behind a box. Right. Um, and in the meantime, using uh, spit, duct tape, and bubble gum, she has managed to fix his interstellar spacecraft. With no droids. <laughs> and then he, uh, he just gets in the ship and flies away. Yep. Um, oh, by the way, I did want to call out that at 2556, when the Mando's on the dewback, it's very, very evocative of the shot of Boba Fett on the, the reptile in the Star Wars holiday special. Um, <laughs> no, it is. It, there's like an iconic shot in the Star Wars holiday special in the cartoon segment. That, that this is very, very clearly aping. Um, so I don't know, like, is this the best episode or is this the worst? Or what do you think? Am I wrong? Is it somewhere in the middle? I mean, it's, it's, it's a throwaway episode for the season, more or less. And um, Yeah, that's a good it, way to put it. It's a throwaway and it doesn't... The nostalgia plays once. Because I agree with you. The sec I watched it twice, and the second time I watched it, I didn't like it as much. You know, it, it almost feels like the Mandalorian version of a fan film. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I've watched more Star Wars and especially Star Trek fan films than I care to uh, admit. Um, and, and they are a lot of fun. But, you know, like you and I watched, for example, the, the original 79 episodes of Star Trek for, I don't know, how old are we? You know, like half a century, right? And, yeah. and I don't know about you, I'm still not bored of them, but, you know, like uh, a, even a really good fan film, you watch once and there's nothing else to say or think about it. You know, like this, yeah. this is reminiscent of that. True. Um, and, it, and it does not move the, the story arc forward. And if you look online at some of the reviews, like 
most of the reviews in the episode are pretty positive, but other people had the same comment that I made that like, hmm, like at the end of this episode, you're right back where you started. Yeah. You know, like it's a lot of, you know, I guess it's much ado about nothing in the end, right? Or a lot of running around just to have them back in the ship flying on to their next destination. Although the rest of the season, the three remaining episodes very much form the final arc of the plot of the first season. Yeah, and I'm... I mean, you can't having throwaways. Like, there's just no way to run anything that's more than a miniseries that uh, doesn't have throwaways. Yeah, that's a fair statement. That's a fair statement. Um, so, uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, it, it is... This one is written by Dave Filoni, and in many ways, this does feel like an episode of Clone Wars. Uh, it has a sort of, sort of flow and plot structure of an episode of Clone Wars. And, you know, maybe that's just how Dave Filoni writes, or that's how he writes Star Wars, because he's been doing it for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I don't know. Now, that having been said... I enjoyed it, you know, like I'm not knocking it, but uh, I, it, it's just like we were saying, it's very different on the second watching than the first. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts? I don't know. Did I miss any of the fan service or, uh, or, or shout outs to other Star Wars media along the way? I'm sure there were others that I missed. No, I think you got serviced pretty well. <laughs> Which is not something I can say every day. <laughs> um. Okay. Uh, Should we wrap there? Yep. All right. Coming up next, chapter six. Thanks, everybody.